This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. What's prison for? That's the title of Bill Keller's new book, in which he examines the incarceration part of mass incarceration. Bill Keller is the founding editor-in-chief of The Marshall Project, a nonprofit news organization that covers criminal justice in the U.S. He was also executive editor of The New York Times. Today, he's here with us to talk about what happens inside prisons and jails, where nearly 2 million Americans are held. That's coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Bill Keller, thanks for being on the Commonweal Podcast with us today. My pleasure. So you acknowledge in your introduction that the incarceration rate in the United States is higher than that of many nations, including Russia's, Iran's, Mexico's, and Canada's, which gives us ample reason to call what we do in America mass incarceration. But on top of thinking about how to reduce the population of people who are in prison, you also wanted to examine the incarceration part of mass incarceration. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to turn the question to what's prison for? Sure. Back in 2014, when we started the Marshall Project, I had no notion of writing a book. But after five years of immersion in the subject with the team of reporters and editors at the Marshall Project, I came to think that I'd learned some lessons that might be useful to pass along. The other components of the criminal justice system get and deserve a lot of attention. I mean, courts operate pretty much in the open. Policing has come under intense scrutiny in the last dozen years or so, and as it should. But the least transparent sector of the criminal justice system is incarceration. That's partly by design. They are not welcoming to outsiders, including journalists, as a general rule. And it's partly that we're happy not to have to look at what goes on inside of prisons. There's sort of out of sight, out of mind. So when I started talking to people about just as a kind of concept, prison, what's it for? I realized that's been the heart of the debate for two centuries. There's this tension between, in America, between a belief in second chances and belief in redemption on the one hand, and on the other hand, a mean streak or a punitive streak, at least, a sort of Puritan streak. And those two philosophies of prison have battled with each other over the decades. You know, they're, the scholars who follow this stuff generally talk about four different purposes for putting people in prison. There's punishment, obviously. There's incapacitation, which means they can't do any harm to the general public if they're locked up. There's deterrent, the, the idea being that if people who see other people being punished will think twice before committing crimes themselves. And there's rehabilitation, which I quickly came to believe is the most important of the four functions. Not that the others are, I mean, punishment is legitimate purpose of society. And there is some measure of protection in locking people up to do violent things. But to believe in the importance of rehabilitation, you don't have to disavow the need for punishment or the legitimacy of locking up people who might be dangerous. But rehabilitation, I kept coming back to one statistic, which I repeat in the book over and over again, which is that 95% of the people who are locked up are going to come home someday. That's 600,000 people a year who were released from federal and state prisons in this country. And I guess the underlying question in my mind is, do you want those people to come home alienated, angry, 
lacking in skills, stigmatized, brutalized, or do you want them to have some to be somewhat equipped to function as citizens? And I think that question kind of answers itself. Yeah, you just mentioned the sort of the. I guess, prevailing philosophies or the philosophies that have evolved over 200 years. And right at the beginning of your book that American-style incarceration in the early 1800s was characterized by this belief in the importance of rehabilitation, the idea that we could restore our fellow creatures to virtue and happiness, as you quote the Philadelphia Society for alleviating the miseries of public prisons, it's saying. And you acknowledge the role here of rehabilitation, and it seemed that there was, until the mid-70s anyway, that the therapeutic role of, of prisons was widely accepted. What happened maybe in the 70s that sort of turned things to sort of a more punitive approach, as you just suggested? Yeah, well, it's ebbed and flowed over the decades. There have been some other periods of sort of tough on crime rhetoric, but the country really took a sharp turn in the 70s. That was in part a response to the fact that crime did actually go up in the 60s. The image of disorder, a combination of actual crime and social disorder and unrest those were real, but there were some smart politicians who realized they could exploit those facts, starting with Nixon's Southern strategy, I guess, and his war on drugs. Reagan expanded the war on crime, and it was all sort of militarized, the war on drugs, the war on crime. And of course, the people who were hardest hit by this were Black communities, because they're well, one of the interesting discussions that you get among scholars is to what extent this was a deliberate attempt to marginalize Black communities and thwart the Black empowerment movement. Shel Alexander, whose book is probably the most famous and definitely worth reading, wrote in 2010, The New Jim Crow, that basically the role of prison was to, and the role of law enforcement and criminal justice system was to contain Black people in their own ghettos. And there are other scholars who think that's a little too conspiratorial, that it wasn't, a, there, wasn't there was no cabal toward Black empowerment. But the net result was the same, that you have disproportionate incarceration of Black men. I mean, a couple of other things that contributed to that sharp right turn in the 70s. One of them was the role of the media. And I think the media has to own up to the fact that it was part of the problem. Sensationalizing crime, hyping crime rates, that's sort of famous, the famous expression that on local news, if it bleeds, it leads. But crime comes with nice visuals. And so television in particular likes it. And reporters often found that their best sources were cops. Bill, I want to maybe get back to a, a point you raised a, a moment ago, too, about the fact that 95% of the population that is incarcerated will, will have to go back into the world at some point. And you talk about in the book, The Carceral Environment, which one of your interviewees calls the upside-down kingdom. And I'm wondering if you could sort of describe what that phenomenon is, the upside-down kingdom, and how that presents a challenge even to some of the efforts at rehabilitation that reformers would like to implement. Right. The Upside Down Kingdom is a track that circulates in a lot of prisons, different, different versions. It reminds me of the serenity prayer in, that they read in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, God grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, etc. The Upside Down Kingdom talks about how prisons run by rules that are completely 
damaging to the inmates themselves. The attitudes and culture of a prison says that if you try to improve yourself taking therapeutic programming or taking college courses, that you're a sucker. And the culture only respects people who are tough and who would rather go play basketball in the yard than sit down with a textbook. And I think most people I've talked to who've been incarcerated or who are incarcerated will say that attitude is widespread and it makes it very hard to, it's hard to educate somebody who doesn't want to change. And that's only part of it. I mean, the carceral environment, as you so nicely put it, consists of a noise, a sense of danger, closed spaces, and everything feels like it's on the verge of chaos. So if you have students who don't really want to change and an environment with little therapy to offer and not conducive to therapy, the results are a high recidivism rate, which is what we have. You know, and you, you spend a chapter two talking about some of the therapeutic approaches that some prisons in the United States actually are trying to implement and sort of trying to depart from these strictly sort of punitive environments. And they're based on programs that have already been put into place in, in countries like Norway. And I think you talk about Germany as well. And I'm wondering if you could describe some of these, these other approaches and, and how and why they've been shown to work and why there are challenges in mapping them to our history and our approach to incarceration. Well, over the last 10 or 15 years or so, it's become a kind of commonplace for there to be exchange programs between corrections officials in the United States and places like Norway and Germany. Norway is particularly keen on proselytizing its approach to prisons. And I've talked to corrections officials here in several states who've worked with the Norwegians or the or other Scandinavian countries or the Germans to try and change the culture. In most cases, what they're doing is picking a small unit of a larger prison retrofitting it so that it looks a little more like a college dorm than a little less like a maximum security prison, changing the programming so that people have to take responsibility for their own education or job training and just for their lives. I want to be clear that I don't think the United States is Norway. I mean, Norway is a homogeneous, oil-rich welfare state, but their philosophy is something we can learn from. And the philosophy goes like this. When you commit a crime, you are punished, and your punishment consists of being deprived of your freedom for some amount of time. In Norway and other places, a lot less time than in the U.S. But point number one is, it's the loss of freedom that your punishment is. Everything else, all of your other rights as a citizen remain intact, including, by the way, the right to vote, which is not true in the U.S. except in two states. So point number one is, that your punishment is narrowly defined and proportionate. Point number two is that the job of prison is to diagnose what it was that made you break the law and address that during the course of your incarceration. And the third aspect of the Norwegian philosophy is what they call the normality principle, which is you want to keep people who are incarcerated living their lives as close to normality as possible because otherwise they're going to forget how to behave when they leave. I've talked to corrections officials in four states that have tried to adapt aspects of the Norwegian or German model, and they're all a little bit different. In Connecticut, they set up a program focused on young inmates, to age 18 to 25. One of our Marshall Project reporters, Marie Shema, 
went to visit it after it had been up and running for a little while and described it as a combination of a family and a reformatory, but not much in common with a typical prison. I mean, other places have done things differently, you know, adapt from the, the European models in different ways. And it's too early to make any grand claims about the success. There's resistance in a lot of places, resistance from the prison officers' unions, resistance from budget keepers of the states, because it's more expensive. You need a higher staff ratio. You need to train. To be a prison officer in Germany, you, you do two years of college-level education, training in the psychology, human rights, along with you know the more conventional self-defense. In the, in the United States, most places will give you a few weeks, and it's very heavily focused on keeping control. Like any good work of journalism, your book does sort of back up a lot of your observations with these statistics and sort of contextualizes things with these numbers. But another one is what happens to life outside prison for those who are formerly incarcerated. And you note that their lives, even after they've ostensibly paid their debt to society, are governed by 45,000 state and federal laws. And I'm just wondering, like, how can anyone be expected to reenter society under these conditions. I mean, what are the effects of this reality on the formerly incarcerated? To be released from most prisons, for most inmates, it's incredibly disorienting. For one thing, they often lost their family ties. If they were in long enough, they've lost spouses. They've lost track with their children. There are restrictions on where they can live. If they happen to be sex offenders, they're going to be listed in a public registry and subjected to all sorts of harassment. Most states have restrictions on various small business licenses. You can't get a small business license to run a commercial plumbing operation or landscaping business without having finished your probation or even after that. On top of that, there's just a sense of the sort of Rip Van Winkle sense. I told the story of one guy in Texas who got out, who refers to a welcome to freedom moment. And his was when he got out of prison is unlike most of the people getting out that day from this prison in Texas, he had a, a mother and a, a minivan full of relatives waiting to greet him. And they all hugged and they got in the minivan and a block or two farther on their way back into town. He looked around and everybody, including his five-year-old cousin, was on a screen. We'll have more of my conversation with Bill Keller in a minute. Catholic priests improve the quality of life for many in their community. But some may wonder, is there something more? As a chaplain in the U.S. Army Chaplaincy Program, you'll impact the lives of our soldiers as well as practice faith leadership around the world, doing work that changes lives, including your own. That's the Army difference. Learn more at goarmy.com chaplain. There's another chapter in your book, too, and I'm, I'm interested in getting some of your thoughts on it because it's a chapter devoted to women's prisons and the unique circumstances faced by women who are incarcerated, especially because, as you note, the American system was built with men in mind, controlling male social structures and male violence. So I wonder if you could talk a little about how this affects the lives of women who are incarcerated in terms of such things as maintaining connections with friends and with loved ones, as contending with corrections officers or even being pregnant and giving birth while they're incarcerated. Sure. Well, there's a reason why the prison system was designed for men. It's because 90% of the people who live there are men. 
but women are more likely to be cut off from their families. Men just aren't great partners for or supporters of their loved ones who end up in prison. There are a few more statistics to throw into the mix. Women are twice as likely as men to report sexual assault. Sexual assaults is, of course, one of the curses of these kinds of places. They bring different levels of trauma with them into prison. They seem more likely to have experienced childhood sexual abuse. Whenever I interviewed women who've done time in prison, I asked them, those who've been out and watched TV, what they think of Orange is the New Black, which is probably most people's image of a women's prison. And they say this, it's a little Hollywoody. But one thing that Orange is the New Black gets right is the way women organize themselves in prison around makeshift families. Men organize along racial lines or gang lines, and the result of that is violence. Women organize around best friends, even lovers, and they become emotionally dependent on one another. But what are the particular challenges that uh, you, you list a few too in the, in the book of women who do find themselves pregnant or do find themselves actually giving birth while they're incarcerated? Yeah, there are actually hundreds of women who give birth in prison every year. It's still legal in some states to shackle them while they give birth, although the federal prisons abolished that program long ago, and so did the more progressive states. But some states still do it. The real trauma is that in most states, in most prisons, within a day or two of giving birth, you surrender the custody of your child to a relative or a foster parent, and that's it. A few states have nursery wards. Bedford Hills Women's Prison in New York is the most famous and most studied. has long had a nursery where women can bond with their children and stay up to 18 months, which is obviously good for both the women and the children. But those are a rarity. Are these more common in some of the nations that we've discussed already, Scandinavian nations or European nations? How do those countries sort of address this? I think you picked up on a theme here. We are an outlier. It's quite common in European prisons for women to be allowed to keep their babies with, again, not indefinitely, but usually up to something like 18 months when all the really critical bonding takes place. There's something else, too, and I think it's an important part of your book, and it's notable that you devote the attention to this aspect, too, of the population that you call quote-unquote, the other prisoners, the corrections officers. And you write that they're widely regarded on the left as sadists in uniforms, and on the right as soft targets for budget cutters, with the reality of the difficulty of their work not really being widely acknowledged. And even you know the same emphasis on punishment and retribution and control that adversely affects the people who are incarcerated also affects corrections officers in much the same way. And maybe you could talk a little bit about this reality, this situation, and the measures that are being taken to examine and expand the role of corrections officers in prison reform. Yeah, but we didn't talk about this, but one of the most dramatic differences between the European prisons and the American prisons is the role of staff. You know, you tend to get people with a social service bent in Europe. In the U.S., I mean, frankly, corrections officers are occupy the sort of bottom place on the totem pole of law enforcement. The law enforcement caste system, they're the untouchables because the jobs are so unpleasant and intense and intensive and frightening in some places. And the states that have tried to implement 
European style reforms have been focused in different ways on the staff. And in some places they just recruit from, they recruit their own little staff within the staff and give them some extra training and define the role differently than, than most prisons define it. Oregon actually, which spent a lot of time talking with Scandinavian countries, they actually wrote a mission statement that emphasizes as the core purpose of their prison system, maintaining the mental health and job satisfaction of the staff. They encourage the staff to sit in on classes. They encourage interaction between the staff and the inmates, which is very much not the case in most prisons. So after years of recent decreasing crime and a rising interest in prison reform, even among some political figures on the right, we're back to, I think we're sort of sensing this atmosphere in which the focus is now again on punishment and retribution. Now, on the one hand, prison abolitionists are calling for radical reform, while on the other, there's vocal opposition to any kind of bail reform or any kind of real you know, prison reform. And you know, things like punitive segregation, quote unquote, are now sort of coming back into vogue for the people who you know, are deemed most dangerous. So maybe just as a way of summing up things, could you speak to the situation, give your thoughts on where generally things could be headed in the context of your book's subject, What's Prison For? Yeah. Well, back in 2015, I wrote a piece for The New Yorker, which was pretty upbeat. It was a piece about the right on crime movement, the conservative movement for criminal justice reform, which is a, a genuine thing. I remember in that in the 2016 presidential primaries, four of the Republican candidates embraced an agenda of criminal justice reform. Not everything that the Democrats would like, but quite a bit of reducing the prison populations and reforming what goes on inside them. I mean, even Ted Cruz was at the time a reformer. And that, that euphoria, if that's what it was, or that sense of kind of common purpose hit a high watermark in 2018 with the passage of the First Step Act, which was a modest reform bill passed by the Senate 87 to 12. Can you imagine anything passing the Senate 87 to 12 these days? And signed by Trump. But since then, the gridlock that seems to have paralyzed everything about the, at least the federal government seems to have silenced the conservative reformers. But the Marshall Project Board had a, a Zoom conversation with Cory Booker, the senator from New Jersey, who's been a passionate advocate of criminal justice reform. And this was not long ago. And he talked with a sort of nostalgia in his voice about working with Jared Kushner to get some reforms passed. And he just said, now those conversations just aren't happening. You can't even reach across the aisle. So having been perhaps slightly overly optimistic in 2015, I don't want to be over-optimistic now. But I do see a number of reasons for, if not optimism, at least hope. Pell Grants are coming back, which means that there will be some growth in college education programs for inmates. Some of these Little experiments a la Norway may show results and persuade more states to, to attempt them. Philanthropy still ranks criminal justice reform as one of you know, most of the major foundations give money for criminal justice purposes, and that remains a top priority for them. And one thing that I think is particularly promising, although it's not going to change the world, is an attempt to train journalists, in incarcerated people to be journalists. There's a program called the Prison Journalism Project that's 
just gotten itself tax exempt status and they organized classes in teaching journalism skills and values inside prisons and then helping people inside prisons get their work published. The Marshall Project from the outset has had a feature they call Life Inside, which is a weekly feature. Most weeks it's written by somebody who's been incarcerated about the idiosyncrasies of life behind bars. So maybe the things won't be quite so much out of sight. Bill, thanks again for being with us on the Commonwealth Podcast. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. The Bill Keller's new book is called What's Prison For? Punishment and Rehabilitation in the Age of Mass Incarceration, and it's available now from Columbia Global Reports. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by associate editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music and David Dalt did the editing. If you like what you heard, please rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And please share it with friends, family, and anyone else who enjoys thoughtful, in-depth conversations like the ones we have here. I'm Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast.